This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a new fuel source for airplanes. And GPS testing is again stressing BOR backup navigation. Also, builders have a new option for the backcountry. Dorian slams the Bahamas and then takes aim on the U.S. coast. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Have a 1056 turn right, heading 130, counterpack final 13.24. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week had a really great chat. I really I learned a lot. Had a fun time talking to Joe Gepner. He's a project manager and uh, engineer from Garmin. And he is helping us save money. So I cannot wait to hear what he's done for us with the new line of non-TSO equipment. Yeah, yeah. So we'll have that a little later on. But first, let's get to the news. So we want to talk first about new fuels. And now this isn't the 100 low lead replacement, this is hydrogen, something that we haven't talked a lot about yet for airplanes. Ian, you did a lot of homework on this story, so I'm going to let you take the lead, but I am very intrigued about how a hydrogen-powered aircraft will work. Yeah, right. So this this is a little goofy. You know, we're still in the beginning stages, and, um, you know, we talked a lot about electric, but there's some folks that are starting to look at the numbers, uh, and maybe who have been for a while, who are saying that electric isn't going to work. It's not, you know, that a lot would have to change in the technology for it to uh, really sustain airplanes in the long run. And we're talking about bigger airplanes. So this company, ZeroAvia, has started up. This is a group of engineers who have had some success. They built a ground infrastructure charging units for electric cars and sold it to a big conglomerate over in Europe. And so they, they've been successful and they, they know new tech. So now the founder became a pilot and uh, wanted to do something different. And so they started to look into different fuel sources and they found that hydrogen can be really effective. Now, uh, this has started on the road. We know there's a couple of hydrogen powered cars out there and they're thinking they can bring it to airplanes and they've put it uh, on a Piper already and, and flown it. It's pretty amazing stuff. Ian, what intrigues me about it is that there's a whole idea and a plan for the ground support network of how to refuel hydrogen fuel cells. And I think that that is something that is currently lacking in the electronic-powered aviation world. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, so when you think about electric, it's like, okay, you're going to have a bunch of, you know, posts with plugins out at uh, the tie downs. I mean, how are you going to recharge these things? You're going to have spots and FBOs or what? So yes, the ground infrastructure, major, major challenge. And so these guys are really smart. They did some market research and they're aiming for, let's call it the, the light, short range regional aircraft to begin with. And they knew uh, from the get-go that they were going to have some challenges. You know, you go to a, an airline and you say, um, okay, hey, we've got this new fuel source. We think it can save you a lot of money, but, you know, buy it. And, and they know their first question is going to be, okay, well, how are we going to refuel these things, right? How are, how are we going to make it work and how long is it going to take? Yeah, exactly. And so what they have done is come up with a business plan that's all in. So the deal is the airline would pay by the hour and the company will supply everything through partners so they'll do the conversions they'll do the maintenance and they will essentially with partners build fueling stations hydrogen fueling stations at airports and be able to offer they say a pretty significant savings and they think that savings is going to come from more point-to-point flights especially when you look at places like california northeast things like that where you can get out of hubs a little bit so they're flying on a malibu and the way this works is it's a little weird. You can use either liquid or compressed gas hydrogen. There's one other company out there that's doing this, and they're doing liquid. These guys have started with compressed gas, and they say that's because they think they're going to have an easier path to certification because that's what cars use. So, yeah, they've, they've flown it. So you need a big tank and uh, the hydrogen fuel cell, and then that runs an electric motor. And so they've flown a Malibu with the electric motor and the fuel cell, and now they have fitted this tank, and it looks kind of weird. I'm going to say it looks kind of like a... It's like a big external fuel tank for a military jet, but it's on the top of the wing. It kind of reminds me of a, a Cessna 310, the tuna tank. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it's uh, it's a little wacky, and uh, but they their point is for things like caravans, you know, you could put them in cargo pods and stuff like that. So, you know, normally I'd say, uh, I don't know, but they've got some good folks on board and the advisory board, and like I said, had some success in the, in the electric market already, so... I just think it's fascinating, really fascinating stuff. And I think it's so cool that, you know, we've talked about electric and some of the limitations there that, that maybe we're looking at something else that might work. Well, the battery powered weight is the limitation for most electric, you know, engines or battery powered engines. So when you wrote this story, you found out that this is supposed to appeal to airlines with around 19 seats and they fly less than 500 miles. So, and and you and I believe you said that we're trying to sort of duplicate the performance found in a, a Pratt & Whitney PT6, which is a pretty common turbine engine. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they can go to these airlines and say, hey, you can swap out with our technology, you know, same power, uh, same performance that you're used to. And, you know, 500 miles, 19 seats, it's like, oh, that's pretty limiting. But they think, you know, when they look at the uh, at the technology trajectory, that in the next few years, they'll be able to fly more normal sort of 1,000, 1,500-mile trips. But I like the fact that, that uh, as we start out with the top of the segment, I like the fact that there is already an idea to how to get these guys fueled up, how to, how to flip them around. And, you know, we're not talking a big quantum leap here. And, you know, going from avgas or jet fuel to a fuel truck with hydrogen fuel. I, I, I don't see that as a huge leap versus, like you said, a power grid. And I didn't even think about it until you mentioned how do you charge airplanes on the ramp, you know, if they're a, a totally battery powered. I mean, that, that was a good point that you brought up. Yeah, you know, definitely something that people are thinking about. So, so yeah, cool stuff. We wish them we wish them well, and uh, we'll we'll keep track of them as they fly with the whole system and, and see how that goes. So could be could be very interesting. 
That's right. And we move from that to this uh, GPS testing interference, Ian. And what do you think about, about this? This is uh, one of several times that we've had GPS signals that have been interfered with because of military testing. And now, as our podcast listeners uh, listen to this, this is going to be a little bit after the fact. The big testing occurred on August the 30th and Thursday, September 5th. But the, the takeaway for our folks is that this could happen at any time. Yeah. And it's getting more and more prevalent across the country. And we're as we're relying more and more on GPS and ADSB. Yeah, that's right. And so I think, you know, this has always been an issue in that, you know, they've always done GPS testing, but now we're talking huge areas. I mean, I'm looking at the map online here and it's like you're going from southern Virginia to the tip of Florida with the impact. So it's big, it's long term and, uh, you know, it's a lot of different altitudes. So I know AOPA has been pushing this really hard because, you know, GPS now being a primary navigation source, it's like you can't just take it down and, and have it unreliable for so many days. Right. And I was thinking about this, you know, just uh, amongst my, my own self is that it's not just uh, GPS for aircraft, but what about for automobiles? And what about for other infrastructures that use GPS to make things work? One thing that really concerns me is that this really stresses the VOR network, which is at this point more or less a backup network. And I'm a little worried about that because we really rely on that GPS stuff. And like we said, not just for aviation, but for other facets. There's so much technology that is relying on it. And as you mentioned, you know, the the testing was going to occur and it was going to affect, you know, everything within a 127 nautical mile radius at 4,000 feet. That's pretty wide. And at 10,000 feet, within about 200 nautical mile radius of where the testing originated, and et cetera, et cetera. So to me, this is a real problem almost anywhere you go. Yeah. Yeah. And I would be curious how it's actually impacting folks because, you know, they put out these notums and, and this is potential impact. So I'd be curious, you know, if you were flying over the past couple of weeks and had some some GPS issues, let us know because I'd like to know kind of what happens. My sense is that maybe you get some RAM authority losses and things like that. So, you know, give us an email, pilot at AOPA.org. And, and uh, if you're flying over the southeast, let, let us know if that impacted you. That's a good point, Ian. And again, there's a phrase that folks could use if it's an emergency type situation and we got to emphasize only an emergency, that stop buzzer phrase is something good to have in your back pocket. That's almost like having special VFR, yeah. something that you need to remember <laughs> to right. say. That's right. Or student pilot or something like that. There yeah. you go. Yeah, it's a great point. All right, we'll be right back. All right, David, so moving on, I want to talk about a new airplane. Now, this is pretty cool. It might seem, you know, a little bit like out of your bailiwick to begin with, but when you dig into it, this is a really cool airplane, a new airplane from Bearhawk. The Bearhawk Companion, is a, they're adding a two-seat side-by-side option to this. It's a tail dragger, Ian, and it looks a lot like a Piper Cub, or Piper, mainly a Piper Super Cub, I will say, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's really built stoutly for the backcountry. But as we were talking about this just before we got on air, and you just mentioned that the capabilities of this aircraft kind of out, you know, really surpass a Piper Super Cub's capabilities. Yeah. So this is a pretty cool airplane. You know, I think a lot of people when they're flying maybe with friends or spouses, they don't, they don't want a tandem airplane. You know, they they want a side-by-side to be able to talk to the person and sit with them. And yeah. so that offers this. And there aren't a lot of things out there like that. I mean, you know, the mall, some RVs, guys flying backcountry. But these quick build kits from Bearhawk, I mean, this one... It's what, it's 44000 and they say to get it flying, maybe around seventy in the upwards of 90 So, you know, for a brand-new airplane, 
compared to a Super Cub. That's affordable. It really is. I like it. I mean, a, a Super Cub is way more than that, even on the, well, Super Cub is competitive or way more than that, depending on where you find one on the used market. Yeah, that's exactly right. And now the other thing, you know, you're saying it's like, these are a lot faster. And the gross weight on this 2,200 pounds, which is a monster. That is. So I've got a little bit of ex- recent experience in a Super Cub, and 1,750 is the gross weight that I've been using. And, and 2,000 pounds if you have a STC for the uh, float kit uh, for a Piper Super Cub on floats. So 2,200 uh, pounds, it's, that's, that is a monster with 225 pounds of baggage area. Well, that's, that's incredible in a cargo area. That's uh, more than I would ever have imagined. Yeah, so now you're talking about filling it up two big guys and all the camping gear you can muster so it sounds like a blast and they already have a four seat heavy hauler as well Uh, dave hirschman pointed out in his article aluminum wheels and uh, basically steel tube fuselage so this is not a you know a very strange uh, aircraft design it's a basic aircraft design and maybe that's why it's a relatively affordable build kit yeah yeah i think so all right, so moving on, Hurricane uh, Dorian, lots going on there. You've been working the past couple of days really hard, the whole the whole crew at AOPA, to try and get some information up. So give us the latest. What's what's going on with the relief effort? Okay, Ian. Well, first of all, uh, kudos to pilots who want to help out. You know, when a, when a national or an international emergency like this arises, pilots have a heart of gold and they want to get going. The main message as we're recording the podcast here on September 5th is, be wary and be careful because right now the Bahamas, uh, they were hit very hard by Hurricane Dorian. The infrastructure is not ready yet to accept a ton of GA help. Hmm. That doesn't mean you have to sit back and not do anything. There are myriad organizations that are awaiting your volunteer help. I'll mention a few of them, and we've got them all listed at AOPA.org. And if you just do a quick search for Dorian, you'll find uh, the main story that we divided into four different tabs that are easy for pilots to navigate. We've got one for donations and relief, one for pilot procedures, a tab for the official word, and another one, the historical tracking of Dorian and what it's brought, you know, the wrath it's brought so far. Yeah. So for donations and relief, of course, at the top of the list is Aerobridge, uh, an organization that AOPA has worked with many times in the past. And Operation Airdrop, and they are Operation Airdrop is mainly concentrating in the United States on the mainland. And Aerobridge is trying to get pilots to to help uh, on the mainland, but also if you've got you know a heavy hauling airplane or a turboprop, something that could really land over in the islands, and and really you need to be self sufficient in mm. enough. You have to have enough fuel to get there and get back, and assume that you're not going to get fuel there. Or if you cut a tire, you know maintenance might be a problem. So really, pilots need to be very wary, and we're urging caution. If you're, you know, basically don't jump out, get in your airplane and fly to the Bahamas. Yeah. Yeah. Double check what we've got listed for you first, because there are some hoops you have to, to jump through to get there and to get there safely if, in fact, it opens up. And we do think it will. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you make some great points. Like you said, as we record this, it's like you can't really even do it because of these TFRs. And not to mention, it's like the the current status may be that these airports are underwater. I think most of them are still closed. There might be one that's open. 
as we're talking, but obviously changing rapidly. And of course, they're they're still in in rescue mode. I mean, they're not yet in recovery mode. They are, Ian, and it's a sad state of affairs because if you've seen some of the pictures that are mainly aerial photos at this point, you'll see that there's just a wrath of destruction. I mean, this is a Category 5 storm, Ian, 185-mile-an-hour winds, and some were clocked up at 220 miles an hour. I mean, that'll rip the weather reporting station right off its foundation. And believe me, I have been in a Category 3 hurricane, a Hurricane Hugo, and I can tell you it is pretty pretty darn scary when all of a sudden the weather reporting station goes off the air. Yeah, <laughs> that's when that's when you know you need help, yeah. So, yeah, I think some great points there. Definitely keep up to date on AOPA. Like you mentioned, talking to all sorts of folks to try and get the latest and just trying to be kind of the center of information for folks who, who want to help. And so it might be that, that the way you help is by shuttling supplies down to Florida and then somebody else moves them from there. Absolutely. Or, you know, in the next few days, maybe popping over. But, but yeah, I think, I think what you said is very true, which is don't just get in your airplane and go. Right, right. But you brought up a good point. You know, there is a need for shuttling supplies between a couple of cities in Florida, between Ocala and Fort Lauderdale Executive. And there's a base of operations at the Sun and Fun area at Lake, Lakeland Linder International Airport, as they did set up during Hurricane Irma. And at this point, at this point, we're recording in the middle of the day right now as Hurricane Dorian is lashing basically the Carolinas. And my friend Tom Copeland, uh, another photographer and photo editor that I work with, he's got an awesome photo, unfortunately, of an upside-down house on the beach, uh, uh, you know, based on the Outer Banks. So they were hit with tornadoes. And so we are still awaiting word to find out what kind of GA uh, impacts there have been here on the mainland in the United States, whether there are flooded airports or hangars or aircraft that have been damaged. We do know that in the Bahamas that several airports were hit really hard and, and it upturned uh, many airplanes. Freeport at basically Grand Bahama International Airport in Freeport, there are several airplanes on the ramp were just torn in half. Yeah, amazing photos. But the airport itself, contrary to what we saw on some of the networks, the airport itself is not closed. I mean, it is the runway itself is still a runway. It's not unusable. It's not in great shape. There's a lot of debris. But the Grand Bahama International Airport was affected, but it, it's still there. Uh, Treasure Cay Airport uh, is still there and is near Marsh Harbor. And Marsh Harbor was, in fact, hit almost the hardest. And we just, at this point, still don't have much word out of Marsh Harbor at Leonard M. Thompson International Airport. So we're still waiting to hear back from that. But the word to pilots would be, yes, check for TFRs and NOTAMs because the, the Bahamian government has special procedures that you have to adhere to. If you're going to fly in there, you need to get permission. And there's a, a pilot information page that we have posted with temporary flight authorization forms, documents that help waive fees for flights uh, that are really flights to the Bahamas, and other official words from the Bahamas so that you can do this and do this safely when it opens up. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Okay, great. Hey, uh, last story we want to talk about today is about another storm brewing, potentially, and that is for the aircraft market. You know, there's been some, if you're following the mainstream uh, news, there's been some indications of maybe an economic slowdown. And uh, with that, of course, all, always uh, the aviation market gets hit. And so Foley Associates, uh, we caught up with, and they talked a little bit about what might happen with the BizJet market this time around. So Brian Foley is our go-to on this, and Ian, you and I spoke recently about the General Aviation Manufacturers Association numbers. We had already indicated that there was a decline in uh, jet sales, and we were worried about that. We also at the time mentioned 
helicopter sales and helicopter deliveries as well. But, uh, but Foley did indicate four factors to consider when you know making a decision about buying or selling a business jet. And I thought this was really good information in light of the trade war with China and the volatile stock market and several other things. Yeah, so one thing, if you remember back, is the market in the U.S. obviously was just just obliterated, hammered. But this is when we were talking about you know China, Russia, Brazil, those countries picking up the slack, and they did uh, largely. I mean, you know, it, it was a lot better than it would have been otherwise. And so the rest of the world did, you know, demand didn't just fall quite as much in those parts, and in some cases increased. And so as a result, the slowdown wasn't quite as bad. And now Brian's saying this time, not the case. There is no backstop in the rest of the world. No, that's correct. And also he indicates that the Mideast jet market has been in flux for a while already. And there's a, a corruption crackdown in Saudi Arabia, and they were big consumers of business jets too. So those two things are also affecting what's happening in the world market as the backup, the thing, the backbone to support any kind of a downturn. Yeah. Now, the second thing, I love this, at least we're a bit more rational, it said. So you remember, you know, th- those were boom times, man. It's like they were. 2007, 2006, 2007. You know, people were spending money like crazy. So really what happened was it was a higher high. And so we had farther to fall. Now, Brian's saying, and he's right, if you look at the numbers this time, it's like we're not as high as we were. And so he thinks that any sort of decline is going to be a lot more, more, a little more even, and not as severe as before. Yeah, not as dramatic. That's right. So more like maybe in the ten to twenty percent range. And whereas it was about fifty percent before, almost a fifty percent drop from thirteen hundred airplanes a year to fewer than seven hundred. I mean, that's significant back in two thousand and eight. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, they talked about is it time to sell? I mean, I think that's you know, it's like boy, if you're trying to. If you're trying to pin your sale to the market, it's like you might as well just throw a dart at the wall because who knows. But he's saying, eh, yeah, maybe, you know, um, if you're if you're looking to hedge a little bit, now might be the time. Uh, but the other thing that they talked about is the difference between the new market and the used market. And some folks, of course, think they're really totally completely linked. And I guess in some cases that's true when you're talking about newer aircraft coming on the market or, or you know, if you're having a slowdown maybe at a manufacturer. But he's saying for a large portion of the market, those two things are totally different. You know, this is interesting, Ian. I'm glad you brought it up. It seems to me that there are less used jets on the market with higher demand for existing inventory. And so that tells a different picture these days than before. This puts a, a little bit more of a stress on the used inventory market. I, I mean, uh, there are less jets out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. On the used market, yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. And so his point is that there are two different buyers. It's like, you know, you think about how you buy a car. Most people, it's like you buy used or you buy new, and that's it. You know, you don't do a lot of crossover. And he's saying the same thing is true with Jets. Yep, either buy it new or you buy it used. And the folks who are shopping for a bargain are going to shop for a bargain, and you will not be able to convince them to buy new. Yep, yep, that's right. Hey, I think that's it for the news this week. Uh, We want to bring on our guest, uh, Joe Gebner. Like I said, had a great time talking to him, learned a lot. And I think you're really going to enjoy just hearing about what happens from sort of conception to uh, delivery for a new piece of avionics. All right, so Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. This is fun. So tell us a little bit about your flying background. Okay, so flying background, I was kind of one of those kids that always wanted to fly. My grandpa 
was in the Air Force, stuff like that. But the opportunity never kind of really presented itself. I went to K-State, and then after school, I, I came straight to Garmin for work, actually, as an engineer. And then Garmin, in around the 2011 timeframe, Phil Straub, our vice president of aviation, he really wanted to get to where more of his employees were also pilots. So he kind of put in this program where Garmin would kick back some dollars for every hour you flew. So as soon as that kind of went into place, I jumped right on it and learned to fly, kind of start, took my first lesson like in May and uh, had my pilot's license in August wow. and just been flying ever since. Uh, just this last April, I, I finally kind of Fulfill a lifelong dream. I bought an RV8. So Fantastic. I've been, yeah, taming the tailwheel over the summer and uh, been been flying that and having a blast. That's great. So so you've always been interested in aviation, but you started actually as an engineer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so went to uh, Kansas State University. I was kind of a computer nerd, got a degree in computer engineering and joined up with Garmin in 2002 and uh, was a software engineer on the, some of the black boxes behind the G1000 working on the, the certified flight deck there. And then um, Garmin, you know, we're always growing and sort of reorganizing and stuff. So over time, our portables team that, you know, made the old uh, GPS map 496 and stuff like that, they had started to uh, build experimental EFASs. You know, a lot of people know of the Cessna Skycatcher. So we kind of were building a a system for for that project called a G300 and then that sort of branched into the G3X so our our kind of very first implementation of that it just ended up being a little bit more expensive and we, we just didn't love the way it, it turned out so they kind of reorganized and pulled some more guys over to that team and I was one of the lucky ones that got their name drawn so I jumped over onto the what, what we now call TMX, and that was about the same time I was learning to fly. The parts of the system that I kind of focused on is, I'm a software guy, so I did the software for the, the AHARs and the air data computers, and then the servos that, you know, created our autopilot system. And then since I was flying a lot more, I kind of got more involved in doing the user interface for our next generation experimental system that has now, you know, now everybody knows is G3X Touch. So yeah, tell us about the X team, because I, I feel like a lot of people probably don't know what that is. And you manage the team. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, Team X, we lessons learned when we did our first G3X, G300 implementation was, you know, to really build the right product for the experimental amateur built market, we needed we needed to build something special for those guys, because it's a unique market. So Garmin felt like the best way to do that was to get together a bunch of the engineers here that are actually experimental amateur builders themselves. So we actually had the team ran by a guy named Steve Wilhoyt. He built a long easy and, and still flies that today. And then we had a couple, handful of other uh, home builders. So I actually, right after I learned to fly, I decided I was going to build my own airplane. So I started building an RV-8. So I, I was on the team. So Team X ultimately ended up being a group of engineers that were kind of our own customers. Hmm. So ultimately we were, we were trying to build products that we wanted. And because we were home builders, the, the thought was the experimental amateur builders would, would like the same stuff that we, we liked ourselves. So 
that's really where TMX started. And then from then, it's been an exciting road of kind of switching over and taking some of those experimental products and doing some new certification processes on them to allow them to be sold to the certified airplanes. And during that time, Steve Wilhoy, who I mentioned earlier, he actually retired. He was managing TMX. And then I sort of slid over and took over his role as manager. So now I'm sort of a engineer in manager's clothing. I uh, <laughs> switched, turned in my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle t-shirts and Cheetos, and I have to wear slacks now. And I'm more involved in the business and leadership decisions for TMX. But uh, I have to say my heart is still really as an engineer. I just love to build things. So uh, yeah, that, that's kind of how I ended up as manager for TMX. Okay. So I, I do want to, I want to get to that certification pathway and talk about kind of what that is. But you mentioned something that, that caught my ear, which is that the, the team was kind of building things that they wanted to build. So I guess, you know, everyone's impression is always in big companies like Garmin, that it's like a bunch of managers sit in a room and say, Hey, there's this market, we should probably attack it. But it sounds like almost like you guys were sort of lobbying from within that it's like, hey, there is something here and we feel like there's really this capability that we want that we know we can build and let us build it. Yeah, TMX is really a unique thing that, you know, Phil Straub, our, our VP, kind of let us run with. He, we always felt like we were like a, a small company with all the benefits of a large company. So they kind of siloed us off and, and really gave us the latitude to make a lot of the design decisions and implementations that we really felt was best for this little unique market that we were actually customers ourselves of. And what it sort of did is it really tightened up sort of the design development test sort of loop to where, you know, we would come up with an idea that we maybe thought was was neat and uh, we'd go ahead and code it up and implement it. Garmin, in the meantime, had also gone out and purchased a RV7A so we had our own RV that we could then go fly. We were all pilots. So anyway, we would come up with an idea, code it up, fly it, tweak it, fly it. And then with experimental, then we could basically get it to the customers really quick. So that's a little bit different than, um, you know, it, it does take more process and more people to get the bigger certified products out. So that was kind of the way Garmin was used to working in aviation. So Team X was just kind of siloed off into its own little sort of rapid development area to where we could really serve that experimental market by getting, um, you know, cool features done and implemented quick and fast. And it, it really worked out well for us. Hmm. So I guess forgive the comparisons, but I, you know, Garmin obviously had been known uh, before this. It solely is, uh, you know, certified and sort of ignored the experimental market, just, you know, not where they wanted to be. And But here you guys were. And so did you feel like, kind of a skunk works in the sense that you were given this full autonomy to go do really cool stuff? Or was it more you were sort of silo that it's like, okay, let those guys play. And if they come up with something, that's great. But you know, they're going to go do their thing. And we'll just sort of keep doing our thing. Yeah, it was like, a, it was kind of a little bit of both. It was really exciting that, you know, and still is today that we're given the, the latitude to kind of be like a skunk works development team in here. And I think um, the larger certification team, it, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship to where like, you know, the, the certified team that there's just a lot of engineers, there, a lot of horsepower and they come up with some amazing things. So one benefit of being a kind of a smaller company inside of a larger company is we try to be the best thieves we can be from our own company and, and reuse that technology that the certified guys come up with, which is, which, which also, you know, kind of allows a customer to maybe fly, you know, G1000 in, um, you know, his, 
his certified airplane and then maybe he also has an experimental on the side and it, it keeps some of that consistency between like our, our brand and our user interfaces. But then, um, you know, like you were saying, as our products sort of took shape and became more mature, then the, the aviation management teams noticed that. And that's how our products then rolled back into like, they started with a certified G5 and then we ended up with our GFC 500 and now G3X certified. So it's, it's, it's been a good environment that productivity can go, can go both ways over the fence. Team X benefits from larger Garmin and larger Garmin benefits from Team X. Okay. So I think a lot of people, you know, like we talk a lot about non-TSO and, you know, it's been a big talking point in the past couple of years, but it's really hard to, I think, convey to folks, uh, myself included, who aren't in that world, aren't in the certification world, aren't in the design world, what the fundamental difference is. I mean, if you're looking at uh, G3X touch, the certified versus the experimental, I mean, fundamentally, what is the difference between those two things? So the the difference between experimental, it's like if you take G3X experimental and G3X certified, there's really very little difference between the two. The G3X certified, we have to do a little bit more kind of system level verification and paperwork. But the reality is like to make G3X experimental, you know, a good safe product that, you know, we would all personally be comfortable flying behind. We were already doing all of this system level testing and making sure it was high quality safe you know we had redundancy built into the system so really what was neat that the FAA has done in these last few years is they've allowed kind of an alternative means of compliance than your than your typical like TSO'd product to where they realize like Hey, if if you're already doing all of this really good stuff, if you just write down what you did and show that it's repeatable, then that's kind of something that they're willing to accept as a different way to certify things compared to the classic sort of TSO route that does take, you know, a lot more paperwork process and people just to push through. So like the difference between G3X experimental and G3X certified really isn't much. It's more like Garmin just taking credit for the good system level safety testing we were already doing. But then the difference between G3X certified and like a G1000 or, you know, a, a TSO uh, flight deck, the big difference is a process called DO178B. And that's a, that's a software process where you have to show as a company that every single line of code has a purpose, has a requirement, and you have to show that you've tested and executed every decision in, on every line of code. So you can imagine the G1000 or G3X Touch, there's, there's really millions of lines of code, especially in those big displays. So to show that you've tested every line of code, it just takes a literal army of people to do that. So, so that's why going that route was just never something that would be cost effective for kind of the the lower end of, you know, part 23 certified airplanes. And that's what G3X certified by the FAA kind of relaxing that and seeing, you know, all the safety enhancing benefits that like the experimental amateur built fleet was getting, you know, they've got big moving maps with weather and traffic and nice autopilots. They wanted to, to see if they could get that safety enhancing equipment up into your, you know, Cessna 172s and Bonanzas. And that's really what G3X certified was. So, you know, all credit goes to the FAA for basically allowing a way for us to certify things and not do that DO-178B 
process. So it sounds, I mean, even then between the non-TSO and the, and the certified, the fully TSO and certified unit, it sounds like the only real difference, I mean, fundamentally that the box is going to work the same. It's going to have the same robustness, the same backups. It's just going to go through a different process. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it also like, there are a few, there, there may be like a few corners of the regulations that we have to add to the certified system. Like, like one example is you have to have a digital quantity readout for your for your fuel each all of your fuel tanks. So on um, G3X Experimental, we always just kind of had a I don't know the equivalent of a needle on your fuel gauge, but it didn't show a number. So as we go through that certification process, we might find some little tiny piece that we need to enhance or tweak a little bit. But yeah, like you said, in general, I mean, unless you really know what you're looking for. 99% of the people out there, you can't tell any difference between G3X Experimental and G3X Certified. Hmm. So other than, I guess, the the cost aspect, do you feel like a certification, I mean, coming from the experimental side, do you feel like certification holds you back in any way? I do think it it, it kind of depends. Like there's, cer- there's certainly, uh, obviously there's benefit in testing things more and, and things like that. For a company like like Garmin, where we were sort of already doing that, Really, there's not a whole lot of overhead in the additional work we have to do to certify an experimental product, but it does take more people. Like it just takes people to like kind of do the STC paperwork with the FAA and get it signed off and things like that. So it's not a lot of additional overhead, but it it does just it adds a few months to kind of the the development cycle from really like we can have the product all done and ready for customers and we can we can get that software out to experimental guys you know the next day where the certified guys it'll it'll take a few months three months or so just to get all the paperwork together so then they can have it also okay so you talked a little bit about how the teams came about but i'm curious about individual boxes i mean is when something's being developed is it is it one of these, you know, a bunch of people sit in a room and have meeting after meeting and talk about, you know, what might be capable today? Or is it like a couple of engineers are having lunch and they think, man, that would be so cool if we could do this? I, it happens both ways. So uh, Garmin's a really cool place to work. Our founders are engineers. It's really kind of an engineering ran company. The ideas come in from every different direction. It can be, you know, a, a guy that lunch had an idea and drew some cool idea on the back of a of a napkin, or it can be much more like sort of market driven where we hear feedback from customers or, or OEMs that, that want something. And in general, like we have, we have this um, sort of concept phase where we, we rapidly kind of put an idea on paper and we go to really the, the business team and we kind of say like, Hey, what do you think of this idea? Do you, do you think the market would like it? Do you think, um, you know, Garmin can can make some money here. So that goes together real quickly. And the people that kind of weigh in on that come from all different backgrounds of business and aviation and engineering. And once it sort of clears the concept phase, then we, we have our next phase that we call a product development phase, where then we sort of, you know, get down into the nuts and bolts and figure out how many circuit boards it's going to take and, and how big it's going to be and, and how many people it's going to take to build it. And uh, we put together that plan to actually build it. Then we go back to the uh, kind of the executive board and we say, hey, here's the idea. Everybody loved the idea. 
here's what it actually takes to make it happen. What do you think? Will you turn us loose? And if, if that gets approved, then really at that point, it's, it's off to the product engineering side and we go and build it. How many, uh, how many ideas do you think you bring that end up ultimately getting approved versus sent back for further consideration? So it, that's probably a, it depends on each engineer. So I throw out a lot of ideas (laughs) and (laughs) so I've had a lot of them get shot down. I'm one of those people that, uh, it doesn't bother me to, to, you know, I I'll throw an idea out there and people look at me like I'm crazy and I'm like, okay, maybe that one, maybe that one's not a winner. Uh, so, um, well, you got to tell me what's the craziest idea you've thrown out. Oh gosh. Well, I don't even, so I don't even know what to say there. Um, like, well, I don't have a good example that I feel like I should talk about. That's, I think that's half the fun of working in engineering. Like, like everybody here is just so kind of excited and passionate about aviation to where you may think you have a great idea and then somebody else will be like, Oh, well, you didn't think about this or you didn't think about that. And, you know, sometimes an idea that maybe doesn't necessarily get accepted right off the bat will get sort of melded and changed and and then we'll end up running with it in a slightly different direction. One reason I went into software engineering is because I think as a software engineer, it's a lot easier to um, come up with a new idea and implement it without uh, needing to go off and build a new box that, you know, cost a million dollars to to build. And that's really where like, uh, like, like a good example for that is that's where the like Team X came up with a lot of the enhancements to the G5. Our, our G5, we, we built that to just be purely to be a standby instrument for the G3X experimental system. And then we were like, one, one day we, we were wondering, hey, it might be kind of neat if G5 could stand on its own. So then all of a sudden it was a standalone product. We thought it would be neat if not only being an attitude instrument, uh, if it could also be like an HSI so the HSI was kind of born out of that idea. And then we actually ended up seeing if it could drive our servos and be an autopilot. And that's really where the GFC 500 was born. So all of those sort of enhancements to the G5 just really came out of the smaller group thinking that we could make some software to, to get the product to do those enhanced features. And we didn't really have to go back to the larger sort of you know product development plan phase because it really wasn't any new hardware. It was just new getting the same hardware to do some new cool stuff. Hmm. So what what about some of the features that you're proud of having helped develop or or bring to market? What when you think back at your career, what are you what are you proud to have worked on? My favorite thing has been like when I when I worked on uh, the the larger uh, you know G one thousand system, it, it was neat, you know, working on one small piece of a large system and, and seeing, you know, the big airplanes and, and stuff like that it would go into. I I did a lot of the network, Ethernet communication and stuff for the G one thousand, but when I came over to TMX, it was really exciting how, you know, whatever I whatever I coded today, I could fly tomorrow and then improve the next day. So that was super exciting. And for me, really, the probably the proudest one I am is is the G5. The G5's just kind of been, you know, a product that we, G3X Experimental was out there doing well. 
we didn't have a standby instrument solution from Garmin. So folks were putting in other, you know, good supplier products and stuff like that, but we really felt like we could make one. So we went off and we built the G5 and it, it just kept getting better and better. And um, it was, it was really fun to code on and, and see it come, come to life. And then it was a product, you know, we, we thought we'd sell a couple hundred a year. And then now that it's certified, just the, the popularity has blown up and, when I go to Oshkosh every year and I, I go down there and I, it's almost getting to the point where you can hardly throw a rock and not hit an airplane with a G5 in it. That's just uh, really fulfilling to me to see uh, that product succeed and in general see the, the customers just love it so much. So you said the G3, the autopilot features you're working became the, the GFC 500. So how, how did that work? Yeah, so that's kind of a fun story. So the the G5 software team was relatively small. Most of the development w- was me and my office mate. We kind of sat in the same office and uh, we were assigned that product. And one day, so we, we really had, we had our autopilot being flown behind G3X. That We'd had that out for years. And uh, as the G5 was developing and turning into a neater and neater product, we thought it would be cool if we could make it fly the autopilot. So, you know, again, we were both kind of really enjoying developing these new features for the G5. Our families, our wives were out of town. So we were like, hey, let's just come in over the weekend. Let, let's see if we can we can make the G5 fly the servos. We kind of had some flight simulators on our computers and we, we, we rigged up this hardware in the loop simulation and we got it kind of working and we we like kind of engage it and try to see if we can fly this virtual 172 and that kind of worked and then we're like okay well let's see if we can fly a you know a bonanza that kind of worked and we're like let's see if we can fly a f-22 that didn't work by the way and still doesn't work so i don't think the gfc 500 is going to fly a f-22 anytime soon but anyway that's really where the gfc 500 was sort of born from then uh we we ended up some of the some of the guys at Garmin actually had bought a 172. They were starting a new flying club here, so we had this autopilot that we felt like the G5 could fly it. Our vice president was like, "Okay, let's throw it in that 172 and see what happens." We put it in there; it, it flew it like an airliner, and uh, we've kind of been off to the races ever since with that product. That's amazing. So I guess that's one of the benefits. If you go to work for Garmin, you think, I need to buy an airplane because not only do you get to you know fly and be supported by that, but you get all the coolest stuff at the same time, I suppose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, um, So again, kind of back to uh, like Garmin encouraging their you know, engineers and everybody that works here to be a pilot. If, you're, if you rent airplanes, um, they, they kind of pay you back. They kind of kick back some dollars for every hour you fly. But if you own an airplane, then we just get a really smoking good deal on equipment, which is a huge perk to working here. So anybody that that does, you know, kind of jump in the deep end and ends up buying their own airplane, we're able to put just the coolest stuff in it because we get such a good uh, kind of employee purchase on our on our equipment. Okay. You know, you mentioned some of the aspects of your job in terms of that you really like kind of coding and flying the next day. I mean, is that when you get up in the morning, is that what gets you to work? I mean, is that what gets you most excited? So definitely. So, you know, 95% of my professional career has been an engineer and that absolutely was it. Like, you know, brushing my teeth in the morning, I'm like, oh, wow, I could do this. And then thinking about it as I drive into work and then just 
I love the power as a software engineer that you can make these machines do whatever you want them to do. So that has driven me for the last, you know, 15 years of my career. And now switching over to like the manager leadership side, it's neat to like kind of, you know, I'll be out flying and, and I'll be, I'll, I'll think of something like, oh, it would be neat if we could do, do this or, or make this, you know, do something different or whatever. And I come in, I, I, I talk to the team about it and then it's like, it's kind of humbling to me to see how smart all these guys are now to where like all kind of have a halfway put together idea. And then in a day or a week, it's like they've got it working and it's ready to fly and it's all polished up. So now on the leadership side, it's it's just kind of neat to see, uh, you know, ideas, you, you sort of drop them into the machine and a product comes out the other end. So so that's pretty exciting, too. Yeah, that, that's cool. So you've been there, I guess, a bit more than 15 years now. So what, I mean, tell us about the next 15 years. What are we going to see? I mean, it's been an incredible progression over your tenure. So what, what are we going to see in the next 15 years? Yeah, so for, for me, I mean, may, maybe this is dreaming too big, but I'd really like to uh, find a way to make airplanes more affordable and more fun to fly, to try to get the younger crowd interested in flying again. I attend all these air shows every year. I, I work the booth for Garmin, um, and uh, I don't. I mean, I'm 40 now, and definitely the vast majority of the people looking to buy my stuff are older than me. <laughs> and I wish it was reversed. You know what I mean? So when I first started to learn to fly, just like everybody else, I'm climbing in an old 172 from the 70s. It smells like grandma's closet, and I don't know what any of this stuff is. So. Um, I would love it if, you know, here at Garmin, we, we can use these these new lower cost avionics to, to get airplanes. If it's an old airplane, make it look like a new airplane on the inside, make younger pilots excited to get in and use this stuff. I've got I've got three kids and it's it's interesting. You know, when I when I took them for a ride in a, a airplane I'd rent, you know, with a classic six pack in it, they just they didn't have any interest in what any of that stuff is. But when I sit them down in front of G3X Touch, their eyes light up and they start touching the screen. And honestly, they learn how to use those touch screens faster than I can. So I don't know, maybe I'm dreaming too big, but but I, I really hope the next 15 years we're able to kind of modernize the whole fleet and uh, get the next young, passionate set of pilots coming up through the ranks. Yeah, great. That's great. Well, Joe, thanks uh, so much for being with us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. This was, this was really fun. David. So I, I just, I loved his, his enthusiasm when he was talking about when it's time to come up with a new idea, just the really short time it takes him to come up with the idea, code it in and go fly it. I thought that was very cool. You know, that's really interesting. The fact that he is a GA pilot and can get out there and put the instrument to work and tweak it, come back, tweak it again. And so we go and we end up having a better product. And let's not forget to mention it's less expensive and it makes pilots happy. Yeah, absolutely right. Hey, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. We're also on iTunes at the Sporties Takeoff app and on Spotify. 
All right. We'll see you next time, David. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.